we essentially are making, as I just sort of alluded to, we're making a probiotic or we're making probiotics that we genetically engineer to have an additional function. And um, the goal is to have that function be beneficial to you, the user of the product, and in a way that you can actually feel and, and evaluate for yourself. So our first product, we genetically engineer to express an enzyme similar to the one that your liver naturally uses to break down one of the toxic byproducts of drinking alcohol that makes you feel kind of not so great the next day. And so the idea is that we are essentially taking a function that your liver already does and we're moving it into your gut. And that's one of the great things about bacteria and probiotics is that we can sort of, you, you eat them and then they get in your gut and then they are these sort of factories of different enzymes. And so we can engineer it to kind of take a function from your liver and move it into your gut where this toxic byproduct, it's called acetaldehyde, is formed. Um, and the idea is that we can break it down at the site of formation rather than allowing it to kind of get in your bloodstream before your liver has access to it. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the Georgia Impact Podcast, bringing you a first-hand look at the big opportunities and issues facing today's software entrepreneurs. On the show, they interview CEOs and founders of software companies and other thought leaders in the space, so you can hear firsthand how they're working to solve business problems with cutting-edge tech, just like we do here on The Disruptors. The show helps CEOs, founders, and product leaders, really anyone who's interested in the latest developments in software startup scene, understand a wide range of topics. Things like machine learning and AI, conversational interfaces, privacy, ethics, and trust, big problems in the AI space, blockchain, quantum computing, and other emerging technologies. You can find and subscribe to the Georgia Impact Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. Welcome to the disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Personalized medicine is the future. At least that's what they say. Today, we're diving deep into that, into your gut, and much, much more. We have the founder, Zach Abbott of Probiotics on the program. They do personalized probiotic medicine. It's pretty incredible the stuff these guys are doing. And Zach's super involved in the field, including the whole anti-GMO, anti-science movement. He's got some very interesting thoughts on the subject, and we'll dive into those and much more. Today, we'll discuss why GMOs are critical to humanity's future, and you can have GMOs or you can have kids, but you can't have both. The reason why GMOs and vaccines have gotten such a huge public image problem and where some of the actual problems do lie. Why probiotics and the gut microbiome are actually a really big deal and might save you from almost all disease. The secret cause of nearly all chronic and neurological diseases. Part of it's your gut and part of it's so much more. The best solutions we can engineer to climate change and why they're almost inevitably GMO-based. How to think about startups and IP in the biotech realm of, let's face it, this century. And ways that we can all use LeBron James poop and other 
unconventional medical treatments to make ourselves into incredible superhumans that live longer, happier, healthier, sexier lives. This one, I know you guys will enjoy. I enjoyed this one a ton as well. It's not going to make your stomach rumble, but it will make you think about things in a, in a new and interesting way. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to let you guys know that we're independent media. The Disruptors comes to you from our team because we think this is important information to get out there. We like to question the status quo, get people having difficult and complex conversations, and ideally spark some interesting debates that can better all of us. But we do that more or less out of the generosity of our own hearts at this point. We have a little bit of funding coming in through Patreon and some other channels. And then as you've heard, we've had a couple of advertisers that we like and trust on the program. But in general, it's incredibly hard to keep something like this afloat. If you guys find value in what we do, think about it. Is it worth 50 cents an episode, a dollar an episode? What is it worth to hear from some of the world leaders in the fields of Let's face it, everything incredible. That's what we do. We try to bring you incredible. And we would love if you find us to be incredible or something close to it, if you'd consider supporting us. Go to disruptors.fm slash Patreon. You can also go to patreon.com slash disruptors. You'll find us there. We would love and greatly appreciate your support. If that's not in the cards, consider referring us to a friend or leaving a review on iTunes, disruptors.fm slash iTunes. And now, without further ado, I give you Zach Abbott. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So you're doing some really interesting stuff, but I think the best place to start would be GMOs. What went wrong? Uh, What went wrong with GMOs? The public perception, the process, everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great question, and it's honestly one of my favorite things to talk about. It's a, you know, honestly, what went wrong is fascinating. I mean, the technology is amazing. Um, it enabled us, enables us to do so many really exciting things that benefit humanity. And I think that a mixture of some sort of, you know, unsavory business practices and then sort of perpetuation of a lot of misinformation to the public, um, resulted in now us being a place where people are really not sure what to make of GMOs when in reality, You know, as I say, it's a very powerful and positive technology that supports sustainability, human growth, uh, cures diseases. I mean, there's there's just a a thousand stories that uh, I could talk about with GMOs that that have really benefited humanity. I think the big problem is there's a disconnect between the organism and then the pesticides that people use for them. Yeah, that's a a great uh, thing to bring up is pesticides. I think a lot of people associate the two, which is interesting. That is sort of one application, which is that we have engineered or we, <laughs> I didn't do it, um, that that folks have used uh, genetic engineering to make plants that are more uh, resistant to pesticides than, the, than weeds. And then that has enabled uh, these farmers to use those pesticides in order to um, increase their crop yields. And so that's really the connection is that the GMO itself doesn't actually have anything to do with pesticides specifically, it more just makes the plant more robust. It actually allows us to use, you know, more controlled pesticide application because the plants are more resistant. I was listening to an interesting podcast, um, Skeptic Skeptic Something, but he was outlining kind of the reasoning of where it went wrong. And when people have a belief, it's not necessarily that that's their firm belief, it's that that's what resounds with their values. So he was saying people that are against GMOs aren't necessarily against the fact that it's a GMO. They're against the fact that it's not natural yes. and organic. But 100%. It, he had such a good reasoning to change that. He's like, but what if you were to position that as the opposite to people? Wouldn't you want 
to it was with vaccines, but it says something right, like on top. Right. Wouldn't you want to take these vaccines to improve your body's own natural right. defense mechanisms so that you wouldn't have to go to the unnatural doctor's office and possibly have to take all of these other medicines? And I was like, holy shit, mind blown. That's such a good way to explaining things. A hundred percent. Like, absolutely agree. It's that, uh, like, there's so many things I want to say here. Like, I mean, First and foremost, it's about values. It's not about facts. Um, it's not that people don't like facts. It's just that like you make sort of judgments with your gut a lot of times. And, and I think scientists often try to convey these things with facts. They say like, well, here's the data. And people, like you say, just sort of feel like it doesn't sound right or it's not natural to them. And so it's not that the facts aren't valuable. It's just that like other things go into their decisions. And so I, I completely agree. And, and if, the value proposition of the GMO or, or vaccination were, were presented better. I think that people would see how useful and beneficial they are. But really, it's a, it, right now it's presented as a choice between like this like dangerous technology and, uh, organic and natural and like what we're supposed to do. And, and that, it, first of all, is not a reasonable dichotomy in reality, but that's how it's presented to people. So they're not really able to make an informed decision. Um, but I agree, like, with vaccines, it's like, you know, about purity like this, you know, and, and so if we framed it as like, look, if you get this vaccine, then diseases won't get into your body or, or there'll be your body will be more protected and it'll leverage your body's natural ability to fight uh, them better. And, and that's a much better kind of presentation than like, you know, kind of numbers of diseases prevented on a population level. And similarly with GMOs, I think that it's kind of the same thing, which is like sort of organic and natural versus genetic engineered. And you brought up pesticides. And so a really great kind of analogy there is that, you know, that plants have evolved for, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of years to produce their own pesticides and protect themselves from pests. And so when we don't use, you know, pesticides, um, when the plants get attacked, they actually produce their own and we can't wash those off. Um, and so that is natural, but it's also very dangerous. So Bruce Ames actually won a Nobel Prize for developing this test that shows how carcinogenic something is. And he demonstrated that organically grown plants um, and crops actually have lots of carcinogenic materials in them if uh, because of their ability to produce their own pesticides. And so, you know, that's the factual argument. But like the other argument we can make is that like by using these genetically engineered products, we actually can grow crops more sustainably with less resources and feed people for, for less money so that it's more inclusive and more people get to benefit and we're less sort of beholden to droughts and, and sort of natural disasters that could cause people to starve. Um, and so there's a lot of really great examples of that. That said, though, I don't want to be eating something that has the man-made destructive killer. Kind of, I don't want to be eating something that's kind of the cockroach designed to survive any type of poison. How, how, do, we, how do we change that? Because I think that's where the big problem came in was the Monsanto kind of pushed their way in. They didn't focus on, hey, we can design bread so that you don't have to gain so much weight around right. the waist. Right. Like if there was any ounce of marketing, you would think there was a better job done, but it was all done focused on the farmers, not on the consumers. But is there a way that we could separate the two? Because GMOs, I, I, I tell people, you can have GMOs or you can have kids. You can't really have both in the future. <laughs> and that's, an especial, that's especially true for people living in the developing world. And how do we how do we reframe it though? Does it just have to be a a different type of categorization in terms of showing people specifically what the problem is? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, and honestly, that is exactly one of the things that 
you know, we really want to focus on in Zbiotics is kind of where that disconnect lies and what we can do about it in terms of messaging and, and, and really moving the field forward. So, you know, we kind of refer to this as like GMO 2.0. And the purpose is not to kind of throw past, you know, technology or genetic engineering under the bus. The point is that, as you said, you know, in the past, genetic engineering has been to kind of benefit the corporation who made it specifically and have no benefit to the consumer. Whereas, you know, we think of GMO 2.0 as increased transparency. So that's the other thing is that this was happening sort of behind the consumer's back. And I think that's part of the reason why people got kind of reacted to it was that like all these things happened and they didn't know about it. So, you know, GMO 2.0, as we call it, is sort of like more transparency. We're very upfront about the fact that we're using genetic engineering and we are doing it specifically to benefit the consumer to make a product that benefits you, the end user, um, not just us, uh, the engineer. So rather than making a crop that's more resistant, we're making a probiotic that provides an additional function to you and your body, as an example. Speaking of probiotics, one of the things that I saw with the with the GMO, specifically glyphosate is the one I saw, but that it essentially decimated the mi- microbiome of people's guts. And that was kind of the, the theory as to why there were potential problems. Oh, that's really interesting. I actually hadn't, uh, hadn't read that, but I, I would be interested to learn more about that. The microbiome is a very plastic uh, kind of variable sort of, I mean, more and more we're appreciating as like an organ of the body. Um, and so, you know, everything we consume certainly has an effect on it. So I'd be interested to see uh, and learn more about that. Yeah, I'll have to see if I can dig it up. But yeah, you're, the, talk to me a little bit more about the the microbiome and about what you guys are doing and why it matters. Yeah, uh, we essentially are making, as I just sort of alluded to, we're making a probiotic, we're, we're making probiotics that we genetically engineer to have an additional function. And um, the goal is to have that function be beneficial to you, the user of the product, and in a way that you can actually feel and evaluate for yourself. So our first product, we genetically engineer to express an enzyme similar to the one that your liver naturally uses to break down one of the toxic byproducts of drinking alcohol that makes you feel kind of not so great the next day. And so the idea is that we are essentially taking a function that your liver already does and we're moving it into your gut. And that's one of the great things about bacteria and probiotics is that we can sort of, you, you eat them and then they get in your gut and then they are these sort of factories of different enzymes. And so we can engineer it to kind of take a function from your liver and move it into your gut where this toxic byproduct, it's called acetaldehyde, is formed. Um, and the idea is that we can break it down at the site of formation rather than allowing it to kind of get in your bloodstream before your liver has access to it. So I want to float something by you and see yeah. what you think. From what I can see, and I, I would guess that data supports this, but I I've, have not looked up the data. In terms of first world countries that are the most nervous about germs and mm-hmm. bugs, mm-hmm. I would say the US is far and away the worst. And I would say the US is far and away the most unhealthy. And I think there's a correlation there between our antibiotic use and our use of these hand sanitizers and the poor health that you see among the population. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, so I certainly can't speak um, holistically from an entire population perspective. But as a microbiologist, I can say that I would agree with you that, for instance, you know, alcohol-based hand sanitizers used constantly will disrupt your natural microbiome on your hands, for, for, as an example. Um, and that isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, your microbiome, sort of imagine it as sort of like a mesh of bacteria that you naturally live with your whole life. 
essentially, if you bust up that net, then there's sort of like chinks in your armor. And so, you know, I do think that that is definitely an issue. Interestingly, I also read a paper where they did a epidemiological study of hospitals that bef- uh, essentially, and they did, you know, a retrospective study of before and after the introduction of all those kind of hand sanitizer stations um, in hospitals. And they saw that in the 10 years since they uh, instituted those as compared to the 10 years before, there's been a massive rise in antibiotic resistant bacteria in hospitals. Um, And they think that, and in fact, that they've even been more uh, robust and resistant to ethanol or alcohol in those hand sanitizers, which is something we thought wasn't really possible, but we've seen it. Um, And so I think there's no doubt that this is not necessarily a positive thing. And so it's it's a balance, right? In a hospital, you want to make sure that there aren't these bad bacteria floating around, but there's all these good bacteria that also help. And so I think that we're, we're learning that, that that may not be the best strategy. How do you think about prebiotics, probiotics, and overall diet for health? Yeah, I have lots of opinions about these things. Uh, yeah. um, I would say that of the three you just listed, I would say that you know conventional probiotic bacteria probably have the weakest hypothesis for efficacy and that prebiotics in diet are a much stronger way to benefit your microbiome. And so, just to define it, um, a prebiotic is a substance that you take a food product or or something like that, that essentially is meant to kind of like fertilize or support the good bacteria that already exist in your gut. Um, And then similarly, foods essentially are the same thing. Um, They're just, you know, not packaged in a sort of supplement kind of um, situation. But like, generally speaking, your microbiome is this hugely diverse group of bacteria. Um, And we have all kinds and Most of them or many of them are sort of strictly anaerobic, meaning that they don't like being uh, in contact with air. And so they're very hard to kind of package into pills and be distributed to you. And so consequently, the bacteria that largely make up a healthy microbiome can't be made into a probiotic or not very easily. And so they're not. And um, the best way to support them is the ones you have in there, you feed them the stuff they like. So a diverse diet of like resistant starches and fibers from fruits and vegetables is really the best way to support a good microbiome. And then prebiotics that are kind of designed similarly are a really great way to kind of naturally encourage the growth of the good, the good guys. Taking a pill with one or two or even 10 strains of bacteria um, that's somehow meant to benefit gut wellness in sort of some ambiguous way, I think, which is currently kind of the status of probiotics that are out there is, is a weaker hypothesis. The idea that, you know, lactobacillus is somehow going to uniformly benefit everybody is is not very strongly supported by the data. So I, I kind of think that's less of a strong hypothesis. Well, it's like taking a vitamin. You might already have too high of levels of certain supplements. So a vitamin for everyone is probably not a vitamin for you. Right. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, and there's just like these bacteria that are manufactured and, and sold to people because they're easy to manufacture, not necessarily because they're part of a healthy adult microbiome. Yeah, it's easy to manufacture sugar as well. What do you uh, what do you see in terms of gut health and longevity? There seems to be decent research happening. Yeah, it's an exciting and dynamic field. Uh, I will also kind of couch that in in this everything disclaimer. that you, everything that you're saying in here is a disclaimer. I just, yeah, I understand. Don't worry, we're not <laughs> promising the world. Right, right, right. Exactly. You know, it's nascent. We're learning a lot, but the fact is, there is a lot of really exciting data that suggests that there could be a lot of really cool connections. I mean. Um, there's a lot's been made around the gut brain axis and, um, you know, your microbiome affecting your mood, cognitive development, uh, inflammation, you know, all these things. And I think it's a very, very exciting 
time to be alive, honestly. It's like I said earlier, I kind of alluded to this, that we discovered a new organ of the body almost. And it's more complex and dynamic than any other organ in our body. Um, it has more cells. They are very, very diverse and they're constantly changing. And so the fact that we have the ability to potentially affect that is very exciting. And so there's lots of data to sort of suggest that, for instance, a, a cool example is, is what we see in mice, for instance. So mice, um, we can, we can, we can have mice that don't have a microbiome. Um, I don't know how they made the first one, but now they raise them in kind of sterile environments. Um, and so they don't get, get exposed to bacteria at all. And their development compared to genetically identical mice that are raised the same way, but with a microbiome is totally different. They're usually honestly dumber. Like they can't solve mazes as quickly and stuff like that. And so we know that the microbiome is the only difference between them, but their behavior and their intelligence is totally different. And so that's a really cool example of how the microbiome is like critically important for us and our development. So I'm reading a book now and it's, it's a strange science fiction type book, essentially using a quantum computing for space, uh, for time travel. But it brings up one really interesting thing I've never seen discussed in any movie, any show, any book. And that's if you are going backwards and forwards in time, you better make damn sure that you're not bringing bacteria or something somewhere and that you're completely vaccinated against any possible options because otherwise you're either wiping it all out or you're getting wiped out. And it's kind of like that strange dichotomy of you only have strength to the things that you've trained against. Absolutely. Uh, I mean... You know, and we see this like time travel is just sort of like a more dramatic version of just sort of like general space travel. Like, uh, I mean, like uh, traveling in space, like as in, you know, hundreds of years ago when people traveled to new islands and things and they brought these diseases with them, right? And they'd never been exposed to them. And so uh, the people, the native inhabitants had never been exposed to them. And so it'd be similarly the same way, right? If you travel back in time, um, you would certainly be exposed to kind of different bacteria, different viruses, and you wouldn't necessarily have the natural immunity that the people who grew up with them did. I, I, you know, it, it, that is such a fun, as a microbiologist, that would be the most interesting kind of story for me in terms of a time travel story. I love that. It's a pandemic right there. What, uh, speaking of, how worried are you about the possibility of some type of microbiological pandemic or epidemic? Yeah. I mean, honestly, not to get doom and gloom, but I mean, you know, it's just, this is sort of the natural order of things is that, you know, bacteria and viruses are both excellent at uh, adapting and succeeding. Uh, they've been doing it a lot longer than we have, um, and they're much quicker at it. So, I think that there is, you know, it, it's a matter of time, and but that's a normal cycle is that, you know, we get exposed to something that uh, is pretty vicious, and then we adapt, and then they adapt. And so, I think there's sort of this back and forth. I think there's very good likelihood that you know, some pretty dramatic things will happen in terms of infectious disease. But um, I also think that we are equipped to handle them in the same way that it's sort of like this escalating arms race, right? Like, you know, 600 years ago, <laughs> excuse me, in the 1600s, uh, you know, whatever that is, uh, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, you know, around the bubonic plague, you know, our best combat of that was sort of riding it out, uh, isolating people, things like that. And and these days, you know, the disease may be worse, but we also have genetic engineering and biotechnology to kind of develop something to ba- battle that as well. So, I think that we'll see things like that happen, but I think we'll also be equipped uh, to handle it. What are the advances you're most excited about in the synthetic bio space? I mean, honestly, I'm just, I- I'm really excited about the fact that as the kind of cost and time drop on uh, for us uh, in terms of reading and writing DNA, there are so many more things that we're able to do. 
Um, we're able to do it much more quickly and we're able to have more people think about these problems, right? So, you know, 20 years ago, synthetic biology, if it even was a field, was really confined to a very small group of people who had, who were able to kind of read and write DNA because it was expensive and, and time consuming and took a lot of expertise. But these days, um, a basic understanding of genetics can allow you to go on your computer and order sequencing or order a new gene synthesized. And so that means that people who have expertise in a much broader uh, field, uh, fields of study can think about applications of synthetic biology. And so there's all these like really crazy things coming out now because people bring their expertise from sort of like, you know, uh, computer engineering and things like that and, and applying that to DNA. And so, you know, there's like information storage, um, being hypothesized around DNA and, and, uh, there's self-free technologies that are being explored. And it's just really, I think, an exciting time because of how wide open this field is becoming. Um, I often draw the dichotomy is that like, if, you know, if, if the 1900s, um, was the century of chemistry where we got really good at kind of doing chemical reactions and making small molecules, the, you know, 21st century, um, or really the third millennium is going to be all about biology and biotechnology and biomaterials. And, um, it's a much more complicated system than technology, uh, excuse me, <laughs> than chemistry. And so I think that the, the possibilities are endless. It's much more complicated, but it's also much more unequal in terms of its scale. Does that worry the democratization and all where you have that exponentially increasing power to do bigger and bigger things and we don't really know what we don't really know? Um, I mean, you know, with any new technology, I think that's always This a one's different. This one's different. You think so? I mean... Because uh, um, if I invent a gun, I can go shoot somebody. Right. If I invent a nuke, I can blow a city off the map. But it's pretty hard to create. It's not something where I can be a high schooler and do that. We're, we're pretty damn close to that from my understanding. Yeah. You know, and I think that new technology always brings new challenges. And I know it feels different, but from my perspective, every time there's a new technology, there's, you know, that can be applied in both directions and there's new defenses. So yeah, like a gun would be very powerful, uh, like, you know, before guns were invented, but, you know, then people make, you know, bulletproof vests and, you know, and I think that like, you know, you have, you have rockets and nukes and then you have like anti-missile defense systems. And so I think that the analogy is there that like with every technology, there's increased risk, and increased danger, but then there's also sort of increased abilities to combat and deal with those things as well. And, and, and that's not to make light of the challenges we will be facing because I think that there will be um, some uh, or many possibly. And so it definitely needs to be, we need to be, you know, in the forefront of our minds and be thinking about these things. But I do think that we can rise to the challenges as we have with every new technology. Where do you think we make our first mistake? Not in terms of a civilizational ending thing, but in terms of a, holy shit, guys, we need to slow down a bit on this thing. You know, that's a good question. I'd say like, you know, you know, to try and guess, from my perspective, it would be it would be bioterrorism would be the thing that I would be probably most worried about because it's probably the simplest way to make a lot of damage. And I think there are, you know, there are plenty of kind of people who would be motivated to do that. So I think that would be my fear. And uh, yeah, I think that that's probably where <laughs> where my mind immediately goes with that question. I would say as well, but I'm always kind of more worried about the path to the path to hell being paved in good intentions. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll definitely have to see, but it's paved in good intentions and the pursuit of profit. Let's add that on there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's a real risk there for sure. So I've seen some pretty compelling stuff that most of long-term disease is coming about due to inflation. Not inf inflation, inflammation. Inflammation. <laughs> inflammation. Do you want to 
comment a little bit on that and where you're seeing the the health field go? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're becoming more and more aware of the long-term damage of kind of like low-level to mid-level inflammation uh, that happens. Um, it's sort of your body's kind of, you know, some inflammation is normal. It's necessary. It creates the homeostasis of your body with the microbes that protect it and, and help it. But at some level, uh, you know, increased inflammation can lead to a lot of problems. And I, and I think that, you know, the more medical evidence is piled onto that, the more and more clear that becomes. Um, but there's a risk there because, as I say, it's kind of a fine balance. And so, you don't want to suppress all inflammation because inflammation to some degree is good. And so, I think that it's kind of like our endocrine system, which is, you know, the glands that secrete all the hormones and things in your body is a very delicate balance. And every time we try to kind of like affect that, we mess something else up. You know, you got to get it. You got to get it just right, right. Otherwise, you screw up the cycle. And it's a, it's such a complicated web of interactions that it's always very hard to get it just right. And I think that that's true with inflammation as well. That like I agree that it is central probably to our long term health, but getting it just right, I think, is something that's beyond our current understanding. I think it is as well. And I think the traditional healthcare solution would be okay. Let's just minimize inflammation. Here's a pill that does that. I think in reality, what's much more effective is to minimize things that cause inflammation. So what's causing inflammation besides besides diet? I mean, we know that, you know, pollution, uh, you know, it, you know, the things you inhale certainly cause, uh, you know, as, as diet, you know, the, you, you put these things in your body, um, and then your body responds to them. And so as we sort of start to inhale particulates and things like that, I mean, those definitely are a source of inflammation. And, uh, you know, I think that sort of related to diet um, is is certainly your microbial interactions. And so, you know, if you are not just the foods themselves creating inflammation, but if you're eating a really poor diet and you create these really weird blooms of bacteria that wouldn't normally happen, that's going to create a lot of inflammation. And so, uh, you know, things like that are, are dangerous um, in that sense. But, you know, as I say, it's hard to say because you know, brushing our teeth is definitely a source of inflammation, but in some ways that's a good thing. And so, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to know. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's the 80, 20 deal. Right. Well, what do you think about these microbiome tests? I think that they're exciting because just the more we understand the better. Um, and these microbiome tests are a way for people to participate essentially in a data gathering experiment. And I think that people really are intrigued and that's a great thing. It brings up awareness around microbiology and the microbiome, which is very important. As long as the results aren't overpromised and it's, you know, it's really presented as sort of an interesting kind of way to get some information, I, I think it's awesome. So, my understanding is that your body optimizes itself based off of what it eats and also based off of what your ancestors eat. So, for instance, if I like to eat the same stuff every day, my body actually becomes better at processing those types of foods. A, is that true? And is B, is there anything that people can do to essentially feel better? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely tr true. I mean, I shouldn't say definitely. It's almost definitely true. You know, we always need to get more information, more data, but data currently suggests that that is the case, that what you are, what you eat in a lot of ways and your microbiome, essentially it's what you feed it is, is what grows. And, and so, if you eat a lot of meat, you'll have bacteria that are more uh, adapted or selected for that, that can help you process that meat more. Um, or if you eat lots of refined sugars, you'll get blooms of bacteria that really grow on those simple sugars and kind of outcompete ones that would grow on resistant starches and fibers, which we know would be really important for your microbiome um, and, and sort of anti-inflammatory properties of some of those good bacteria. So there's a really 
cool experiment where I talked earlier about these germ-free mice, these mice that don't have a microbiome. And they actually just transferred the microbiomes from either obese mice or skinny mice. And they just, and, and these, all these mice were genetically identical. And the germ-free mice that got the obese microbiome ended up eating more, getting more obese, um, and extracting more nutrients from their food than the ones that got the lean microbiome. And, and their behavior changed because of the bacteria that were in their gut. That is a really an amazing idea, right? And so, so you're trying to do a poop transplant with LeBron? Yeah, right. Exactly. Precisely. You know, like, uh, like, you know, but it only works as long as you get the same foods as LeBron eats, right? You know, so, um, but it, it's very interesting. Like, you know, if you eat a lot of bad food, your microbiome will adapt to that. And then if you stop eating that food, it is very hard because you will actually crave those foods. And that's largely driven by your microbiome and the nutrients that it is able to extract from those foods. So if you switch from eating a bunch of hamburgers to eating a bunch of leafy greens, you'll feel hungry. Uh, and you'll, and you'll crave the, the hamburgers because you're not pulling all the nutrients that you would get from somebody as compared to somebody who eats leafy greens all the time. And obviously that will shift and, and, but it's just, there's going to be that period of time where there's pain, right? Where you don't like it and you want something else, but ultimately you adapt uh, and your microbiome changes. And that's the great thing about the microbiome. If the cravings are coming from the foods that your body's adapted to, is there a possibility that cravings and possibly, let's go even farther, feelings in general come from the microbiome or come from bacteria within your body? And that's why they seem so goddamn random? Thoughts? Uh, I think so. I mean, you know, know, I'm not aware of, you know, the state of kind of the hard data on this. But, you know, like the experiment I just described, I mean, we have a lot to suggest that that is the case, that... uh, that a, like a lot of the feelings you feel are driven by kind of an inner interface and an interaction with the microbes that live in you. If you think of yourself less as a person with these passengers and more as an ecosystem, which is a totally normal way to think about it. If you look at the numbers, right, we have more bacteria than we do, you know, human cells. We have more, many more genes than we, uh, you know, bacterial derived genes than we have human genes. Um, and so really, we're kind of just like a walking ecosystem. Um, and so from that perspective, it almost would be weird if we were making all the decisions because we're not even the majority kind of shareholder in those, in those, in those thoughts. So, yeah. Yeah. It really, it really makes you think about the world a bit differently. Yeah. So to pivot this a little bit, thinking of thinking differently, how do you think about biotech IP? So you're running a startup. You're clearly a super nerd and love this stuff. I can tell <laughs> just from the enthusiasm. How did you get into this? Why start a startup? Yeah. I, you know, I, uh, the startup itself, the idea of that really came from just a passion for getting to kind of dig into problems and try and find solutions and develop things myself. And I love that we live in a time when it's not weird to start a startup and people will help you do it. And I had the opportunity to just pull some ideas out of my own head and try and give them to people. And I, I love that. I think it, you know, it, it's just really a great opportunity. And so I got into this specific startup because I saw the power of microbes. And like we just talked about, I mean, like bacteria are doing so many things for us and they can, and they're capable of so many things. They spent the last 3 billion years evolving to be super efficient at stuff. And so all we have to do is just sort of give them a little tweak and they can do kind of these really amazing things for us and with us. And so uh, to me, that was just a huge potential. I started thinking about the bad bacteria, kind of what we talked about earlier. And that's sort of the state of the microbiological field 20 years ago was we thought about infection and bad bacteria. But as people have come to appreciate 
the microbiome, we've learned that actually most bacteria are innocuous or beneficial. And there's this really nice homeostasis and um, synergy that, that we have with these bacteria. And so that to me was way more exciting was that these, these bacteria could be harnessed for good and could benefit us. And in fact, that's mostly what they do. So it made a lot more sense to kind of work in that direction. So I'm excited about all the things we can do. Guys, we have awesome news. I want you to open up your podcast player for a sec. Look at the disruptors. You see that cover art? Well, those guys, the ones who helped us design that, they're sponsoring this podcast, Design Crowd. This is a company I've worked with before in the past and have absolutely loved. Gotten some great mock-ups and great designs for past podcast cover arts and, you know what, this one for the disruptors. And they're sponsoring the podcast because they love what we're doing and we love what they're doing. You can go and get designers around the world to compete on and create the best possible design and graphic projects for you. Just go to disruptors.fm slash design crowd. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-W-D, design crowd. Disruptors.fm slash design crowd. These are people we've used before and love and know you guys will too. If someone's got the cash for one test, they can either do a DNA test, your basic workup, or they can do a microbiome test. What would you recommend they do if they want to optimize for health and longevity and happiness? At today, in 2019, it's definitely a genetic test. Uh, we know so much more. We can interpret that data so much better. Right now, we don't know what, it me- what a, microbiome, a certain microbiome structure means. Um, there's, you know, we have some definitions of what's called dysbiosis, where we know for sure that you're in a state where your microbiome isn't healthy, but there are so many or really arguably infinite states of healthy microbiomes that it would be very hard to just look at the data and determine whether or not there was anything going on at this stage. I think that will change. But right now, we know a lot more about genetics than we do about uh, the microbiome. When do you think we'll get to the point where we can start pop, we can stop popping pills and either have A, probiotic slash microbiome solutions to health, or B, just straight up genetic some type of more synthetic bio enhancement, uh, either altering your genes or some other way to have more specific personalized medicine? Yeah, I think it's going to develop in stages. And a lot of it will be based on, you know, public comfort and perception as much as it will be on the technology. I don't think that there will really ever be a time that we won't, that sometimes uh, a pill won't be better than genetic engineering or or microbiome or, or things like that. But I think that uh, over the next, let's say, 30 years, I think that like sort of that will shift from being like 99% pills um, and like 1% personalized medicine to kind of being a closer and closer ratio to 50-50 or, or you know, 75-25, just depending on how good we get at it and how willing people are to accept it. And I think that's a really important thing. So um, as an example, you know, we use genetic engineering. We genetically engineer microbes to make insulin for diabetics. And nobody has a problem with that. Because it's better than slaughtering, you know, 50 million cows and pigs a year to extract insulin from their, from their livers. Or, uh, yeah. Uh, but as we expand that out to other indications and as we use genetic engineering for more and more things, I think people will have opinions about those and it'll largely be based on how it's presented to them. And as we talked about at the beginning of this, there's a, a huge deal to do with messaging and really getting the proper information and explaining it in a way that is straightforward, transparent, and not scary, uh, and aligns with people's values as opposed to just kind of throwing facts at people and hoping that, that, that they'll interpret them the way that you want them to. And so uh, I think that that will be as crucial as the technological developments that will be required. 
Definitely. And price. Because we got to get yeah. the price down quick enough so that yeah. it's not just rich people benefiting. Right. Well, and that's honestly, that's where I see genetic engineering having a huge advantage is that 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 from a kind of materials perspective, this should be a highly more accessible and democratic strategy than, you know, manufacturing things really inefficiently. Uh, you know, ultimately, synthetic biology has the potential to scale and be more democratic. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's exciting, even with food. You know, we use genetic engineering to make foods more robust, grow better, be more resistant to, to drought. Um, and that allows more people to have it, right? Organic is, is great if you want to put your head in the sand and, and pay your extra $5 per fresh fruit or vegetable. But ultimately, it's, it's GMOs that will feed the world. I could, I could definitely agree with that, especially based off of the caveats that we added earlier. Right. What do you think about... Oh, there was one thing I really wanted to ask you. What was it? Well, we're not going to get that right now. What technology has you most excited outside of what we've talked about and why? Hmm. I would say that honestly, it's probably, you know, there's some really cool advances in uh, sequencing, a DNA sequencing that allow us to sequence really quickly and really accurately. And I, I just learned about um, some kind of new technologies in there uh, that are coming through the pipeline right now that are amazing. And they essentially just kind of read the DNA as it goes through a pore, as opposed to the way we used to do it, which is where we like synthesize by matching the DNA bases to a kind of a template and then reading what we matched. And so we have to kind of de novo synthesize DNA every time we want to read it. And I found that there's new technology that essentially reads it as it goes. And so you can read it way faster, way longer, uh, way longer strands of DNA and for me, it's like, that's just, you know, we're getting information and that's just going to make everything accelerate way faster. And so I think that that to me is, is the most exciting thing is really just, just more info. Just to clarify, an analogy would be reading on my laptop versus printing out and then having to read the printed out pages. That's a great analogy. Yeah, that's exactly okay. it. Yeah. I remember my question from last time. So we talked about taking LeBron's poop and making it your poop, right. and making you feel much better. Right. But what do you think about the, what do you think about the young blood experiments? The the mixing of young and old blood, so to speak, with the billionaires, the Peter Thiels. Right. What do you, have you seen anything interesting? It seems to it seems to work. Yeah, I mean, I think that the hypothesis is reasonable. Uh, you know, strictly from a scientific perspective, let me be very clear about that. That, like, uh, you know, your like when you're younger, you make a different set of sort of soluble transcription factors and things that would exist in your plasma that trigger kind of, you know, that are meant for more rapid repair and growth and things like that as, as you sort of, you know, grow when you're a child. And so it would make sense that those things that you, you naturally downregulate as you get older um, and express less of if you kind of jack them up would benefit uh, your healing processes and your growth processes and things like that. But, you know, I think that there still needs to be more data to determine whether or not it's effective, uh, tr truly effective for you know, whatever you might want it, the indication to be and that it's also safe. And so, you know, I think that there's, you know, it's kind of uh, an interesting hypothesis, but, you know. What about stem cells? Generally speaking, I think that there's a ton of power in stem cells and they're very fascinating and they, we've had, we've done a lot of really amazing things with stem cells that have been life-saving and life-improving, you know, and I think that, you know, that research is, that research is very important. Do you think that the U.S. will be able to stay ahead in some of the synthetic biofields that are coming forward? Do you think regulations will hold them back? Well, so currently, and this is something I'm really glad you asked this question. You know, this is something that I am extremely passionate about. And it's one of the stated missions of Zbiotics is to 
ensure that that doesn't be the case. That isn't the case. And that doesn't mean that we're against regulation. Uh, we're very much in, uh, in favor of regulation, but um, that that regulation stays rational to protect people's safety as opposed to responding to kind of public outcries based on misinformation. So we actually see that right now, that's exactly what's happening in, in some countries in Asia and Europe, uh, or most of Europe, honestly, is that regulations are not based in science. They're based in kind of in public opinion, and, you know, because policy reflects public. And so I think that it's extremely important that the United States stay open-minded uh, because of the amazing power that genetic engineering has um, in terms of our ability to fight disease, feed a growing uh, population, combat climate change, all the really huge problems that are facing humanity. And so if policy shifts, we lose one of our best tools for combating those things. And so one of the goals is to kind of have products that demonstrate the value and are open and transparent about how they work so that people can have more information about about really this really powerful technology. Is it possible to keep a democracy from over-regulating something like that because there will be control without sort of keeping your foot on the brake? Because in a democracy, you're kind of beholden to public opinion and things will go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're beholden to public opinion, but you also have the ability to affect public opinion. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the, like I say, that's one of our goals is to have this sort of open conversation and, you know, provide information. And, you know, and we believe that, that with, with information and transparency comes informed decisions. I mean, if it truly is the best thing, then we believe people will make that decision. And I think that, you know, we want to have our voice in there because right now there's not really a lot of pro GMO being stated. And I'm not really sure why that is. So I do think that it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. I think it's also an opportunity as well. If we were going to talk about another topic that you're passionate about, what would it be and why? I mean, I'd say the topic I'm most passionate about is definitely the one we just talked about, which is, you know, GMO policy and information. I think that, that it's critical for people to understand how exciting and beneficial these tools are to dealing with problems, many of the problems that we created as humanity. And so, and, you know, in terms of equity and fairness, this is a technology that can, as I say, feed a growing population, treat disease, and um, it's a way for us to really have technological solutions to really challenging problems that are in a pipeline. Get worried at all about monoculture crops, so you have something and suddenly a new pest comes in and wipes out everything. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that is a very important part of sort of, again, you, you know, to go back to kind of the concept I introduced earlier, which was GMO 2.0. It's, you know, transparency is really important, safety, but also responsibility. Um, and so monoculture essentially is the idea that we find something that works really great and then we plant it everywhere. And then if one thing goes and destroys that, we lose everything. And so that's obviously a really short-sighted and poor strategy. I think of it more as genetic engineering augmenting or increasing the number of things that we can grow. So for instance, if a climate is adapted for to only grow one crop, you know, in the past, you would have to just grow that. Um, so like, you know, potato famine in Ireland, right? They all grew potatoes and then one thing came through and blew it out. But if we engineer other things that are, you know, maybe more temperature resistant or drought resistant and need less water, then you can grow them in new environments and you actually can increase the diversity of the things you're growing, which also increases the nutrient profile um, that people are being exposed to. And so I think that that's actually, it's an opportunity to, to do the opposite which, opposite, which is hedge our bets. Speaking of hedging our bets, climate change and GMOs, 
take that as you will. There's two ways you could go. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from my perspective, it's one of my favorite applications of GMOs is that we can engineer microbes that can fix carbon for as an example. So we can turn like there's this great company that is literally growing microbes on flue gas that's being expelled from from um, uh, manufacturing plants. And so they take all the the waste, the exhaust, and they just bubble it through water with salt in it. And the carbon that would normally go into the atmosphere is being fixed by those bacteria and turned into sugars that the bacteria then can grow on. And then they take that biomaterial that the bacteria make and they use that to feed fish that they grow in fisheries. So rather than overfishing the ocean and grabbing these small fish to feed the bigger fish and creating sort of these ecosystem collapses, they're taking microbes they grew on CO2. So they're actually eliminating CO2 from the environment. And then they're also, yeah, it's a double win. It's amazing. And so I think that this is how GMOs can and will be uh, optimized to really benefit global warming and and our, and our, or I should say climate change, excuse me, and our, um, and, and our rising CO2 problem. Well, not only that, but if you have different sections of the world suddenly underwater, we're probably going to have to change crop allocation and crop type. <laughs> that's a great point. You know, that's a, a, dar- a darker view, but it's a good point is that we could definitely, uh, you know, allow us to adapt to a changing environment as it, as it happens. Um, so that, that's true as well. Do you think it's dark or do you think it, at least in some essence, is inevitable? That could be, when I say that, I mean, we may lose, it doesn't necessarily have to be an apocalyptic right, amount of man, right. but we're going to lose some things. No, I think you're right. I think at this point, it's sort of an inevitability likelihood, likely. And so it's a good point. I mean, rather than put our head in the sand, we should probably plan for it a bit. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah. Miami was already a bit of a cesspool. Now it will be an actual pool. <laughs> oh, I can make some jokes occasionally too. <laughs> so what, uh, what inspired you to get into microbiology? You know, honestly, my initial interest was in, as I said earlier, in disease. I thought that I saw this as a challenge and as something that, you know, maybe I could fix or help with. Um, and so I was really interested in sort of HIV research in particular. Um, I saw this as like, you know, it's this disease that people get and there isn't anything, any way to cure it, at least at the time when I was learning, I learned about it. And that to me was like, man, that's a huge problem of humanity that is still available for, for me to help solve. And so I think that was the initial draw was the idea that I saw this problem and it was very kind of visceral and grabbing. And I thought like, oh man, I could really dive into that and I could make a difference in humanity. But then, as I said, as I, as I learned more and I got more educated and I got more information, I saw that really the amazing power of microbes is in the good, not the bad. And so that's when I sort of shifted my focus and kind of seeing them as these amazing kind of factories that really run the planet. I mean, they cause everything and they change, they, they really are what creates the environment we live in. And so it's a pretty exciting power um, that, we, that we can try to tap into. One thing that I like to ask people is, think of the last two, three, five people you know that died. How many of them didn't have some type of major disease or neurological disease? And the answer is very few. There's not a lot of people dying from old age. And almost all the science that I've seen seems to say that inflammation plays a major role in those chronic diseases. It's crazy to think about because that's not, that's not the case. Another crazy thing, I don't remember who pointed this out to me. When you're driving your car, did you ever go on long distance road trips when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah. Remember how there'd be bugs splattered all over the windshield? Right, yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. Huh. 
That is uh, that is very interesting. I, I don't it really used to be it. covered and disgusting. Right, that, right. That's how I remember it and that's how other people remember it. It's a, uh, yeah, we kind of forget what we don't remember. Yeah, right. That's a very, I, you know, I'd never really thought about that, uh, but that's a good point. Less bugs on the windshield. Mind blown. If you were, uh, if you were yeah. going into, if you were going into the world today, let's say you're 18 years old, what do you study and why? Ah, uh, you know, I'm biased, but you know, I would study microbiology. I, I, like, I think it's. Let's say you got to pick a different one. All right. Uh, if I got to pick a different one, uh, I would study. Uh, I would study physics. Uh, I would study physics. I think it's. Uh, there's, you know, another frontier. I think microbiology is, you know, and synthetic biology are, are, you know, a place where amazing discoveries are going to happen. But I think that uh, physics and specifically astrophysics, to me is just so there's an it's another amazing discovery and frontier kind of uh discipline so i would i would i would get my chops in that because i think it's fascinating especially because they're all going to die if they don't have microbiologists on board yeah right know what they're doing right it's uh it's it's a little bit crazy we don't want to spread our spread ourselves and uh poison potentially to the rest of the world that's your pitch to get on this exactly my dream is to be uh you know an astronaut microbiologist that'd be amazing yeah, just reach out to Elon and be like, I know you wanted to make it to Mars and die, preferably not on impact. I'll try to help make sure that bugs don't get you. Sound exactly. good? Exactly. Or I'll like the me- bugs make you uh, able to eat your food and get the nutrients, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you had to, if you wanted to have one thing covered on the podcast, have another guest on, what would you want to hear them talk about and why? Yeah, I mean, actually related to what we were just talking about, I'd love to hear about sort of the space settlement uh, kind of uh, space, I guess, the space space. Um, I think that it would be really, it's a really fascinating uh, area. It's a really interesting. Um, and there's, there's so many considerations that go into to thinking about that. And it's not just getting there, which is a lot of times how we think about it. But when we get there, what do we do? And, you know, what are the industries that can and will pop up as that becomes more and more of a reality? I think that's a really fascinating topic and question. Democratization always leads to stuff. One, two last questions before we end it. So the first one, you see one thing with doctors and health professionals. There's two different things they do. Either they eat their own dog food or they don't. So what is, what is your health regimen look like in terms of what are you eating? What are you doing to stay healthy and fit? What do you focus on? Yeah, as I say, I mean, I think that the greatest thing I learned in grad school as a microbiologist who didn't, as one of the few microbiologists who didn't uh, directly study the microbiome was that, you know, the best thing you can do for your microbiome and your and really your gut health is a diverse uh a a big variety of of resistant starches from plants and vegetables excuse me fruits and vegetables so i try to eat a lot of different fruits and vegetables every day and it's the best thing that you can do for your gut and it's you know solves two problems because you got to eat anyway um so rather than paying for supplements and then eating the hamburger like just eat the fruits and vegetables and you're covered and so that's probably the number one thing that i do and in terms of my gut health. And diverse guys. I knew a guy who did bananas only and that did yeah. not go well. No, absolutely. Got to be a lot of different stuff. I constantly try and uh, find new weird vegetables to eat and do all kinds of different stuff. Favorites? My favorites are the, like leafy greens, the cruciferous guys. Like uh, I really like uh, parsley and spinach and kale and broccoli and cauliflower. Those are like my, my big favorites. Oh yeah, those are good ones. Yeah. So what if you wanted to leave people with one thing? It can be a quote, a call to action anything, what would it be and why before you tell them where to find you? The one call to action I would say would be to approach GMOs with an open mind and, uh, and you know, look at the values that and things that GMOs can do to support humanity. Um, so, sustainab- uh, sustainability, 
on these, you know, um, you know, supporting human health uh, and being really a, a much more egalitarian way to distribute um, the tech to, to distribute food and, and resources. Um, and so those are not things that are normally associated with GMOs. And so I would love for people to kind of, you know, open up your mind to reevaluating kind of the messaging that you've been receiving. And I would point out if you've ever eaten a banana, it's genetically modified. All bananas died, guys. We had to crossbreed them and to modify them. That's what you're eating. It's true. I mean, carrots, tomatoes, all these things. Apples wouldn't exist without genetic engineering. I believe almonds used to be poisonous as well or toxic. I mean, uh, is it cyanide, right? That makes the almond taste the way it is. So we probably dialed that back. I guess. I'm not sure. <laughs> Speaking of which, avoid those apple seeds, guys. Yeah. This has been a, this has been a fun one. Where's the best place for people to find you, Zach? Um, you find us at uh, zbiotics.com is probably the best way or on Facebook or Instagram. It's been fun. Hopefully, you guys have enjoyed this. Hopefully, it's been informative. I'm sure it has because it has for me, which means in general, it's an awesome podcast. So, thanks for, com- <laughs> thanks for coming on, Zach. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was great. That's the secret to the show. Get awesome people on so I can learn from them. Awesome. Cheers, guys. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.